0: Hello, and welcome to the Called Out Cafe podcast, episode number 18 in the series titled Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. I'm your host, Doug Hooley. Last week, we finished up looking at what Paul had to say about the function and operation of when the ecclesia gather in the name of Jesus. This week, we're going to take a look at what the other apostles had to say about the same thing. Now, remember as I go through these several books of the Bible today in the New Testament, that if what they bring up has already been covered by Paul's letters, then that means we've already discussed it, and I won't generally be going back over those details again. Paul was the apostle appointed by Jesus specifically to spread the gospel to the Gentile nations and build upon the foundation of the ecclesia with God's truth that they had not previously been exposed to. Although what the other apostles and authors of the New Testament wrote was not necessarily originally addressed to the same Gentile audience, what they wrote is equally as true. Discernment's necessary when we, quote, Rightly divide, unquote, what's written by authors such as Peter, James, and John when their original intended readers were Jews and Jewish Christians. Having a different religion and cultural background than the Gentiles, the authors assume knowledge on their readers' parts, like, you know, the history of the Jews and their laws, what they'd been through. Those are things that most Gentiles didn't fully realize or possess. So let's start with the book of James. The book of James is addressed not to an ecclesia in a particular city, but rather, like I was just saying, to the 12 tribes of Israel which are scattered abroad. To read the book of James simply from our 21st century Gentile perspective is like reading someone else's mail. If you do a simple read-through of the book, you may gain a basic understanding of it, but you're going to miss a great deal of its meaning by not knowing the historical background. So, let's cautiously proceed here. Let's talk about James chapter 2, verses 1-4. to four. Now, when James says, quote, For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel... We might quickly conclude that James is hypothetically writing of some rich guy that shows up to church. Without thinking about it too much, this feeds our belief that since the day Jesus ascended into heaven, people have been regularly attending church. But that is grossly inaccurate. (laughs) James is writing to Jews, many of whom, if they're followers of the Pharisaical sect... We were still in the habit of attending the synagogue. Jewish synagogues, not Christian churches. Nevertheless, the point James is making is just as valid today in modern gatherings of the ecclesia as it was in first century Jewish synagogues. Showing favoritism or partiality within the ecclesia is the product of what James calls evil thoughts. So now, considering this, what does it say in churches where the leadership takes pride in and calls attention to having esteemed church members, such as doctors or local celebrities and elders who are prominent pillars of the local community? Does it not say that we wish to attract more of these influential movers and shakers into our church? Does it not make those who are not of such worldly status, feel a little bit inferior? Does it not play into the pop culture marketing of the church? Well, these things, according to James, is a product of evil thoughts. James' warning to us about playing favorites in the ecclesia falls under the category or the principle of showing love for one another in the ecclesia, Favoring one follower of Jesus over another because of their status or wealth is an unloving thing to do and might just be an indication of a lingering love for the things of this world. Not saying this ever happened to me, (laughs) but it would be like somebody uh, standing to wait to talk to the pastor and then the pastor sees some big sports figure walk in the room and they leave whoever they're talking about, blow by the person who's been waiting to talk to them, obviously, and approaching the the beloved sports figure and welking, welking, wel- excuse me, welcoming them to church. That's just not a good thing. And that's what James is talking about here. Well, let's move on. Two out of three components of the prime directive of the ecclesia converge in this passage. And, of course, to review, the components are of faith hope and love those are the things that float the boat <laughs> of the ecclesia anyway listen to this this is from james chapter 2 verses 14 to 17 what does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but does not have works can faith save him if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you say to them depart in peace Be warmed and filled. But you don't give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Belief and love for our brothers and sisters in the Ecclesia go hand in hand. What James is saying is that you say you have faith in who Jesus is, but you do not love those who belong to him your faith is illegitimate. You have failed to accomplish the work of God, which is to believe in the one whom God sent. Without Jesus, your faith is dead on arrival. If believing in Jesus is the first and most important work that the called out can accomplish, then the second and third is that of loving others in the ecclesia and maintaining hope in what Jesus said he will accomplish. Loving others in the ecclesia is a primary way to put faith into action. Moving on again. Chapter 3 of James starts off with this caution. This is from James chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Well, this is not a standalone pronouncement. James ties it to the rest of the passage. Anyone may benefit by what James wrote here. Quote, for we all stumble in many things, unquote. But James's words appear to be directed towards those who presume to be teachers. It's no wonder why. False teaching in the Ecclesia was already in John's or excuse me, James' time, spreading like wildfire. When James warns of the power of the tongue, He's specifically speaking to teachers. There is influence in the tongue of a teacher. Quote, It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Unquote. It can stir up all sorts of trouble. So when James said, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show through good conversation that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. He was still talking to teachers. He's telling them to humbly teach the truth rather than having, quote, bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, unquote, which results in boasting and lying against the truth. To quote James again, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every e- evil thing are there, unquote. There are numerous motivations for teaching, other than increasing faith, maintaining hope, or showing love to the ecclesia. James warns teaching for the wrong reason can be an earthly, sensual, and demonic thing. These are sobering words, which could cause anyone who's writing a nonfiction teaching-based book to become, <laughs> like myself, to become introspective. Moving on again. This is from James chapter 5, around about verses 7 to 16. James closes his letter with several nuggets of wisdom. He tells us to be patient because we have the hope of the return of the Lord. When James says to establish our hearts, he means to know why you believe what you believe or what you have faith in and be confident in it. He encourages anyone who's suffering to pray in the hope that their suffering will cease. And if they're cheerful, let them sing a song of praise. If someone's sick, let them show love by calling for the elders of the church to pray over him or her, in the hope that they will be healed. The often quoted verse and confess your sins to one another, which is in James chapter 5, verse 16, does not necessarily mean that one should give a detailed accounting of their sins to anyone in the ecclesia. Recognizing everyone is a sinner, I believe a better translation of what James encourages is, acknowledge your faults to one another. To do so is an act of humility and understanding that we are all sinners on equal footing with God. James is also strong to be a he's also a strong proponent of praying for one another. Well that's all I got to say about the book of James so we're going to move on to the books of 1st and 2nd Peter. Well like James Peter's first letter was also addressed to his Jewish brothers and sisters who believe that Jesus is the Messiah and son of God. This time specifically those who had been chased off To what's now the area of Turkey. If something is biblically important and true, we should expect to see evidence of it throughout the New Testament, not just in one place. We shouldn't be surprised to find several biblical authors just repeating the same thing. So we should not be surprised to see that Peter begins his letter focusing on the hope, faith, and love which is the ecclesia. Listen to this from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 23. You're going to hear that faith, hope, and love in here. Please listen for it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, of an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Once again, uh, those are actually selections that come from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 23. Faith and love make a strong appearance early on in 2 Peter also. Peter intricately knits these two precepts of the ecclesia together. I'm going to read to you now from... uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 5 to 9. It says this: Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you'll be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. You see what Peter did there? He drew the connection between faith and love. You know, Go back and read that one again for yourself. It's pretty cool. Peter creates a sort of chain of character qualities in this passage that lead from faith to love. A case could be made that about halfway through this list, that perseverance relies heavily upon the third prime quality of the ecclesia, which is hope. So there you'd have all three. Well, Peter doesn't refer to people chosen by God to make up his special people as the ecclesia in chapter 2. He calls them instead living stones. However, these living stones are the individual called-out ones who do, in fact, belong to Jesus, as in the greater unseen ecclesia that includes all the called-out from across the globe and all time, the true universal ecclesia that's known only to Jesus. However, the living stones that Peter mentions are currently being built up into a spiritual house they do not represent a physical earthly institution any more than a pile of stones represents a functional edifice of any kind what these stones these living stones are part of is currently under construction i would argue that the ecclesia of jesus not that i'm an argumentative guy but is being built up in the kingdom of heaven, where Jesus is. It's made up of not just those who are currently alive and on the earth at this time, but of the holy ones of all time. I think that's a gross misunderstanding on many's part today. What we see on the earth today are thousands of individual cells of the Ecclesia across the globe like thousands of piles (laughs) of metaphorical stones that have been quarried, each stone currently being masterfully hammered on, drilled, and chiseled by the master stonemason, Jesus. He's preparing all these living stones to be carefully placed in what it is that he is building, a building that's currently being erected where he is. He'll bring his building upon its completion with him when he returns, then we truly will have the kingdom which contains the whole Ecclesia on the earth. Well, in first Peter chapter two, verses thirteen to seventeen, Peter echoes the words of Jesus, quote, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, unquote. And also Paul's words in Romans chapter thirteen, where he wrote of obeying the secular authorities. But here, Peter tells us that if we're counted among God's own special people, that our status is that of being, quote, sojourners or pilgrims, unquote, in this world. We're subject to the laws of this world while passing through it. The ramification of this truth is huge for the ecclesia. The Apostle John bluntly tells us not to love the things of this world, and that if anyone does, the love of the Father is not in him. The person who is in love with the things of this world, whether they're material goods, relationship with unsaved, or pets, or entertainment, or politics, the American ideals, or anything else which is temporal, is in love with the things of this world. So, What do you do when you have deep feelings for things like pets or our home, considering John's word? Should you feel guilty about that? Well, I believe the key is that our love and gratitude must be directed towards our creator. Copper is the name of our Bernese Mountain Dog, who's been a companion of mine for years. Copper was there to greet me when I returned home from the hospital after both my heart attacks. Those were very tearful reunions. Copper is well into the final years of his life. He's literally a thing of this world that I'm going to greatly miss when he's gone. Well, what do I do with what feels like love for this big, furry, majestic beast Who's affectionately known by our family as the love pig? Copper turns my heart to God, <laughs> unless, of course, he's being a bad boy. <laughs> I'm so grateful to my Creator that He provided such a companion for me to get me through some post heart attack rough times. I marvel at my God's creative genius in making such a beautiful, big, hairy beast. that somehow can be both frustrating at times and comforting. Copper causes me to praise God for the wisdom of his ways and for how he shows his love to me in unexpected ways through what he created. But though he moves me towards God in such ways, Copper, the big, furry, majestic love pig, is still just a thing of this world. And that's where he's got to remain in perspective. Sure, I'm going to miss him when he goes. And the same thing could be said about our homes or any other kind of material possessions. They can move you towards just being grateful and thankful to God and the wisdom of His ways and being the great provider. When I just gave you a partial list that qualifies as things of this world, absent from that list was religion. I did that so I could dedicate additional time to religion as being a stealthy, yet fully qualified, thing of this world. Religion is temporal. It's made up of routines and stuff all instituted by humans. If you've never witnessed a Catholic mass in a large church or cathedral, they are beautiful and appeal to every sense. There are things to see, to smell, touch... Hear and taste. Jesus said that, True worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. True relationships with God and His Son are spiritual and eternal. Religion is fleshy, sensual, it's entangled with this world and temporary. The called-out ones are just passing through this world. They're transients. America the beautiful is not our permanent home. The land where we cling to our American ideals and way of life and where we fight for what people tell us are our God-given rights is spiritually not ours to claim. The called-out ones are currently the outsiders in this world they will be outsiders until Jesus returns puts all his enemies under his feet and establishes his worldwide kingdom given that's the case how are we supposed to live in this land which is not our home well, let me read this to you from 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 11 to 17 beloved i beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshy lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put silence to the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the King. Peter's advice is that we fly under the radar and tread lightly in this world, that we obey every law of man. We are to do so for the Lord's sake. Peter's quite specific that we are to obey the government, whether it's at the local or national level, and that we're to honor all people, including the King no matter if we agree with him or her or not. Where the Bible draws the line on complying with what government asks of us is simply when we have a political or moral disagreement with the government. Since it's not our kingdom we're living in, we should expect to disagree with what's going on. We should expect to be upset by what we see in the media. And we should not be surprised in a world that, according to Paul, Satan is the god of when we are disgusted or dismayed by what we're seeing happening around us. Of course, we don't have to surrender to the culture that surrounds us and join in on the sin. We can turn off the TV, change jobs, move to a different state, stop shopping at a particular store, choose somewhere besides Disneyland a vacation, and quit spending all day online. This is a bigger topic than I'm going to have time for here, but simply following laws, regulations, policies, and mandates when we don't agree with them is not an act of denying Christ and worshiping a false God. Many laws Christians get upset with are those which are permissive. For example, they permit someone to get an abortion, yet, the followers of Jesus or anyone else is not being told they have to get an abortion. Think about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. Those guys were told that they had to bow down to the idol under pain of death, and they chose not to do so. And so they were thrown into the uh, fiery furnace, and of course they didn't burn, and an angel was seen in there with them. God miraculously uh, protected them. He preserved them. Well, they were thrown in there because they chose not to follow that law, because That was something that they thought would come between them and their God, a sin. So they didn't do that. Now, I don't want to draw too much from that here, but what we did not see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego doing was protesting uh, that no one else should be allowed to bow down to this pagan idol. That wasn't what they were trying to do there. They weren't not bowing down to the idol in protest on everyone else's behalf, they were just not participating in what the king had told them to do. I think we need to recognize the difference there. Well, right now in America, well, where we are to draw the line is when the government asks us to do something, like surrender our citizenship in heaven and switch our allegiance by denying Christ and bowing down to a different God. Right now in America, much of the church does not appear to be following the Apostle Peter's God-given advice as they choose sides in this world. When the government attempts to take away or outlaw my belief or faith that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and God is alone to be worshipped, and they try to take my hope in what Jesus said and what He's accomplished and will do, and they won't allow me to show love to others in the ecclesia, then I will part ways with my government. The second part of what Jesus said was, render to God what belongs to God. If the government tries to take my faith, hope, and love, it's attempting to take what belongs to God, and they can't have it. Most have heard how the early Ecclesia was forced to go underground when they lived under the persecution of Rome. Christianity was outlawed at least 10 different times in the first 300 years of its existence. Yet, the Ecclesia never ceased to exist. The Ecclesia was forced to part ways with the government's laws because the government sought to take what was not theirs. The Ecclesia secretly, and for the most part, silently defied Rome. They continued in their belief and their hope to support one another in love. They met covertly when it was necessary to meet. They did not wait for permission. Neither did they waste energy and call attention to themselves in protest. Let's move on now to the first, second, and third letters from the Apostle John. You can see the prime directive in John's letters clearly. Like the other apostles, he, stress, he stresses the importance of faith, of love, and hope amongst the ecclesia. Above all else, I think John really emphasizes love. But first, let's look at faith. Uh, here's a couple of uh, things he wrote regarding faith. This is from 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes, has faith, that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. This is from 1 John 5, 4. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Okay, so what's he got to say about hope? How about this from 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 to 3? Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. And finally, let's talk about love. This from 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John writes of protecting the integrity of the beliefs and hope of the ecclesia as he, like the other apostles, strongly warn against false teaching and the spirit of the Antichrist, which existed or exists in this age and it existed during John's day, day also. John encourages the called out to actively test the spirits. If someone doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah and has come in the flesh, they are not of God. If they don't love their brothers and sisters in the ecclesia, they don't know God. And if someone shares in the hope of Jesus' return, John says they are purifying themselves. So, while the Apostle John sticks to emphasizing these essential three principles of faith, hope, and love, he almost has no practical advice to offer regarding the structure or operations of the ecclesia. He does encourage those to who are, he was writing to in his third letter to support those who are going out on a journey for his, being Jesus's namesake, implying support of those who have undertaken an evangelistic mission for the cause of Jesus. So, the book of Jude, the last one before the book of Revelation, like the Apostle John Jude stuck to encouraging adherence to the foundational principles of Jesus. This just should not be in a, a surprise to us anymore. The main purpose of his letter is to warn of apostates who have infiltrated the ecclesia. He contrasts them with those who are authentic members of the ecclesia. It's no coincidence that those who he refers to as being authentic members of the Ecclesia were those who adhered to the foundational principles of faith, hope, and love. Listen to this from Jude, verses 20 to 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy, or hoping in, of our lord jesus christ unto eternal life faith hope and love these three principles we've seen it now in the gospels and paul's letters and every one of the apostles' letters though we've seen you know many other things instruction those are the three things that we can see as foundational principles supporting all the rest Well, let me kind of sum up things here so far. By far, the most common theme that runs through all the letters of the apostles, including Paul's, is that of the prime principles which the ecclesia was founded on and operates according to. I've said this many times today now. Faith in Jesus, hope in what he said, and love for one another in the ecclesia. Every New Testament writer also emphasized the importance of protecting the integrity of the faith through being on guard for false teaching and false teachers, so much so that it's tempting to look at being watchful as a prime tenet of the ecclesia. What the ecclesia are largely charged with being watchful for are false teachings that can cause them to stray away from the principles of faith, hope, and love. The problem of false doctrines spreading in the time of the primal or early ecclesia and in the church now cannot be overstated. There's no reason to believe it's different now than it was back then. There's much evidence to suggest that it's the same. The biblical authors were writing to communities of the ecclesia that began in their lifetime under their, the apostles, direct influence. How naive it is for any of us today to think that we're not susceptible to false teaching in an age where we are literally influenced by unprecedented deception and unlimited access to false information on the Internet. We also have been loudly warned that it's only going to get worse in the days before Jesus returns something really troubling is when someone says, I'm not worried. I totally trust my pastor or their church. This is someone who has surrendered their personal responsibility of being on guard and watchful to another human being. Turning one's life over to the church or a pastor is not the same as turning one's life over to Jesus. It's far from it. James offered cautions to those who were teachers. They'll be held accountable for what they teach. Peter likened the ecclesia to being like living stones, and he, along with John, offered advice for how the ecclesia is to live in the world while being separate from it. But beyond this, noticeably absent is advice on how to do church. There's nothing about how often the ecclesia should meet or what they should do when they do meet. There's nothing about facilities, worship services, offerings, specific roles of the called out, Sunday school, pastors, elders, or any outreach. There's an emphasis placed on love and doing what's right or good in the sight of God, but even that is mainly directed towards individuals and not in the context of gathering together as a community of ecclesia what the apostles are depending on is the ability of the ecclesia to apply the primary principles to their communities of believers that they're meeting in this is the wisdom of God at work and is critical for us to understand today as the gospel is spread across time and space it's encountered many different cultures Each of those cultures have and will continue to evolve. Whereas many specific practices might not have transitioned well across time and every place, the basic foundational principles of faith, hope, and love remain essential and will never pass away throughout all of eternity. What would the Apostles say our organic response to belief in the good news of Jesus should look like today when two or more believers come together? Should the answer be based on a checklist of traditions of the past 2,000 years? Should it even be based on how the ecclesia of the first century naturally responded to the gospel in their drastically different place and time? Or should it be based on authentic belief in Jesus and growing and guarding that belief— and the hope in what Jesus said, and increasing our understanding of that hope and love for one another within the ecclesia. Should these three things, faith, hope, and love, that all the apostles repeatedly emphasized not be the common denominators of the ecclesia that transcend time and space? That, rather than clinging to recycled ancient Roman and medieval Western Enlightenment or postmodern traditions... Many new Christians have asked the question, Now that I'm saved, what do I do? When we combine the wisdom of James, Peter, John, Jude, and Paul, the answer for the new and mature believer alike should be, Trust that you're walking in the good works that God foreordained for you. Continue to strengthen your faith by growing in the knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is and what He said and what He did. Actively guard against false teaching. Live a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your hands and abide in Christ. Maintain your hope in what He said He's going to do as we look for His coming. And finally, show love to others who are of the ecclesia. Get together with them. And when you do, treat them as your brothers and sisters. These are all good works that those of the ecclesia can walk in. These are the principles that can biblically guide any local community of the called out instead of creeds and formulas, traditions, patriotism, marketing marketing strategies, mission statements, the guiding of professional Christians, trends, or culture. Well, with that, that's all I got to say. Next time, we're going to talk about Jesus' letter to the seven ecclesias, the book of Revelation. Until then, may God bless you richly. Shalom and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H Ministries. And I'm on Instagram, at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at dughooley.com. Or email me at doug at Doughooley.com. That's doug at d-o-u-g-h-o-o-l-e-y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long, and God bless.